behind him, and Lindy always plays behind people too. It, it just is almost like a movie, you know, when people are talking and there's music playing. It's like, wow, that's more passionate. Actually, Scott, can you stay up here and play the whole, I'm kidding. <laughs> Makes it sound way more deep. It's almost like if I had an English accent, you would believe me more, as studies show. There's these cards in your bulletins, and we want to encourage you, if you have a question on marriage, sex, dating, any of that stuff, we're going to try and give as biblical answers as possible. And I want to give you, we already have a list of questions that we've gotten, and uh, that's going to be happening the very first week of October. So here's some questions. What exactly is going too far? I could guarantee you a teenager asked that question. Can intimacy truly come before marriage? Why is it a sin to have sex before marriage? Is it okay to live together before marriage? What are the challenges of being married to a non-believer? How do I convince my teen to stay sexually pure? Um, what's the appropriate age to talk to my kids about sex? And then some other marriage questions. Um, after marriage, do couple share same bank accounts? What's the right thing to do? Um, why do Christians hurry to get married um, after dating for so little time? And just to have sex. And so, I mean, there's just like questions like that. We've got tons of them rolling in. So if you have any questions that you'd like to see answered, we're going to start going through some of those in a few weeks. And so we'd encourage you this week and next week to go ahead and write those on these cards. They're the blank cards that you have in your uh, bulletin. And uh, we're going to answer those as best as possible. Also, I haven't made an announcement about this in a while. Um, we have... On the bottom, if you have a smartphone, iPad, or anything like that, and you would like to follow along the service every single week, we put it, the notes online onto the Bible app deal by version that they make. And um, we make our notes available, and you could email them to yourself so that you could electronically save all of your notes, which is a helpful thing to do. And if you're playing on Facebook, God sees you, you're a sinner. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I'm on Facebook right now. That's not... Totally kidding. Today we're diving into week three of our series called Just Married, and we've been having a great time. We've been hearing about responses that people have been having. People have been talking about this at their homes. People have been engaging in their marriage in different ways. People who were going to be gone today said, hey, are they going to be online so that we could listen to them on the ride home from, from our vacations? Because they're having such a good time re-engaging in their marriages, talking about these. So I would encourage you, we've got some discussion questions. Um, I always try and force the conversation on the message. Because I don't believe it's my wisdom, I believe it's God's wisdom being poured out. And so I try and force a discussion so we always have these discussion questions, so I encourage you at home, talk these over with your spouse, talk them over with your kids, have these discussions, because as you do, as you work out your faith, you'll begin to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And so the next two weeks, we're going to be dealing with the issue of sex, because it's actually a very problematic thing inside marriages. We would think that you tend to get married and you tend to, um, you tend to just say, okay, you get married and you live happily ever after. But the whole premise of the series is it's never just happily ever after. It's never just, oh, it's, you know, sex is great. It's never just that. So let me give you a couple of disclaimers. If you're bashful, don't worry about it till next week because we're not going to get any bashful stuff this week. But if you're bashful a little bit, this is biblical stuff. This is God's wisdom that God created. This is God's domain. I mean, so many different people have tried to, um, to take sex and taint it. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Today we're talking about correct belief of sex. And next week we're going to talk about um, what the Bible has to say between, with sex between married couples. 
And it's actually a very important topic because intimacy in your marriage is very important. And because if your marriage is going well, it's putting the gospel on display. And so this is actually an extremely important topic. But the church and culture has been feeding people lies on this topic for so long. And we're going to get into two of the lies today. The first lie is that it's just sex. No big deal. It's just sex. It's just things that people do. And if you watch culture, if you watch TV, if you watch movies, it's just, you know, you meet each other, you kiss, you go on a couple dates, and bam, you're in the bedroom. I mean, that's what culture tells us. It's just sex. It's not a big deal. I mean, that's the first lie that we get. And the other lie that we get is that it's all bad. It's gross. It's only for procreation. It's all bad. But today I want to explore both of these issues a little bit because when, um, when we begin to listen to culture, we begin to listen to a lie one way, and when we begin to listen to sex is all gross, we begin to hear a lie a complete different way. So I want to look at sex two ways. First, we want to look at sex as a God. That's little g, God. Some people begin to treat sex as God. And let me explain to you what I mean by this. We treat it as an act of worship. And I know that's probably difficult to see, but if we begin to lay this out a little bit, I think you'll begin to see it. Romans 12.1 says this. I mean, this is a verse that pretty much everybody would have memorized. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So Paul is talking with a group of people in the Roman church who are surrounded by sexual sin. They're surrounded with people who go for temple prostitution. They're surrounded with the empire's view of what sex ought to be. They're surrounded by this. And what Paul is saying is, what you do with your bodies is a sacrifice to God, is actually an act of worship. I mean, he says it right in here. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So how we offer our bodies is worship to something, right? How we offer our bodies is worship to something. What we do with our bodies, how we treat our bodies is worshiping something. But the question is, are we worshiping God? For many people, the bed is their altar. Their bodies are the sacrifice. And sex is the God. This is a view that is largely fueled by pornography. Pornography in our culture has run rampant. And not only that, it has gone into, um, because of the pornography culture, has gone into TV and what's acceptable for, um, there's this term that political scientists use called public morality. In other words, you're driving by a billboard and you see a half-naked person. That's something that political scientists would call public morality. What is it actually doing to the conscience of the entire public? But it's run rampant. It's gone into every sector of life. And, and let me give you an example. In this country, mainly in America, because marketing is so prolific, if you buy dish soap, a certain brand of dish soap, you would think that somebody would want to have sex with you. Now, let me give you an example. It's, you're, I'm serious. So as guys, you're running out and buying tons of dish soap. <laughs> just, a, just a joke. Body spray. You would think that somebody's going to run and jump you and want to have sex with you. It's a culture that has said that if you do this, 
I know Richard just walked in. You're late, but church starts a while ago. But we're glad that you're here. <laughs> He's my buddy, so I can do that. Um, oh, <laughs> thank you. Amen. So we live in a culture that tells us this, though, that, that if you buy certain products, that this is what's going to happen to you. And so well, I remember right when these Axe body sprays came out and, and I was a youth pastor, every single kid stunk to high heaven like this Axe body spray. And they're spraying it everywhere all the time. Like we'd play a game and they're all like, shh, afterwards. And I'm like, you guys, look around. Is anything happening? Is it like the commercials? But our marketing culture, our pornographic culture, leads us to believe that if we buy certain products and we do certain things, that people are going to want to have sex with us. And they want you to believe this. And this is the view of sex as God. 1 Corinthians 10, 7 through 8, um, Paul puts them together like this. He says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were as it was written. People sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And um, in that day, uh, 23,000 of them died. He's referencing an, an Old Testament passage. But what he's saying is do not become idolaters and commit sexual immorality. Idolaters, what idolatry is, is the sin of worshiping other gods. Paul and is recognizing in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians that if you view sex this way, if you view sex as this act of worship, which none of us do, we don't ever want to believe it's an act of worship. But if we treat it this way, it's actually the sin of idolatry, of worshiping other gods. And we're actually going to talk about this a little bit more um, throughout the message. So, but if you want, and some people asked the question, and the question came up in, in our list of questions that we're going to answer in October, why not have sex before you're married? Well, I think one of them is really, really obvious. If we worship God with our bodies, if you're a professing Christian, if you say that you love Jesus, then that needs to wait till you're married because you're offering your body to somebody else rather than to God. And that's, that's just one of the biblical answers. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but that's just one of them. And if you're living that way, it's hard to come to church and know deep down, living inside, I've got this thing where I'm offering my body to somebody else rather than to God first. It's hard. You begin to think I'm a phony, I'm a fake. And then there needs to be some repentance and submission to God and to authority. And so there's this view of sex that sex is another God. And one of the things that these lies begin to tell us, um, and we begin to be so deceived at, you know, when we begin to see pornographic images, when we begin to see industries and firms that all they do is create lust, that's their entire job, is they want to create lust for their product, lust for a person, lust for something, so that you'll go and covet it and buy it. I mean, that's their entire job. I think one of the major problems in our societies is that our standard of beauty has been defined for us. Our standard of beauty has been defined for us. I'm about to say something, and guys, you're going to want to take pens, smartphones, whatever, and write this note down, and your wives are going to nudge you and say, write that down. Um, God does not give you a standard of beauty. God does not give you a standard of beauty. God gives you a spouse. Now, society has said, 
this is beautiful. If you look at this picture of a person, that's beautiful. But let's look what he did with Adam and Eve, right? He created Adam. And, and he said, name all the animals. And as Adam is naming all the animals, those the Bible say, he does not find a helper suitable for himself. And so God knocks him out, takes a rib out, and creates a woman and hands her over, and then, mar- and then he officiates the first wedding. Did Adam get a choice? Did Adam go, God, I like blonde hair, blue eyes, I'm a leg man. Did he say that? No. God gave him a spouse. So whatever your spouse is, that's what you're into. You know, if, if your spouse is tall, you're into tall. If, you're, if your spouse is wide, you're into wide. If your spouse is previously skinny, you're into previously skinny. That's what you're into. It's true. God did not give us a standard of beauty. And the whole notion of standards of beauty has completely tainted the way that we've seen our spouse. People who fall into this lie and fall into this trap that sex is another God begin to see their spouse as ugly. But God did not give us a standard of beauty. He gave us a spouse. Did you all hear me or do I need to say it five, ten more times? (laughs) We get this, right? God did not give us a standard of beauty. And that's what happened in Genesis chapter 2. Because God wants us to love our spouse. But this whole notion of, of sex and lust becoming another God is really played out in another couple areas in the Bible. The Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 is beyond the screen. Here's, here's what it says. You should not covet your neighbor's house. Covet is wanting something that someone else has. And then listen to what it says. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his maidservant or his manservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I almost read this in the King James Version, but anyways, one of you got that joke about the donkey. Do I need to be more clear? I don't think so. But you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And then Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard what it says, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust is a form of coveting. Lust is a way of making a sacrifice to the God of sex. Lust happens when we allow culture to define our standard of beauty rather than looking to our spouse for our standard of beauty. Whatever your spouse is, that's what you're into. When we treat sex this way, we begin to treat people as objects. And we actually begin to dehumanize them. And and, and the Bible tells us that people have this, God has placed his spirit, God has placed his image within people And when we devalue people, when we dehumanize people, we are actually committing this massive sin against people and against God. When it comes down to it, seeing sex this way hurts us in the most intimate place in our lives, in the bedroom. Now there's another way to see sex. And so today, like I said, we're going over the ways that we've looked at sex and the way the Bible tends to look at it. The other way is that we look at it as gross. Now, if you've grown up in church, this is a lie that the church has told you. I'm just going to be flat out and tell you that this is a lie that you've heard in church. That sex is gross, it's only for procreation, and that if, you know, if, even if you look, you, you just better gouge those eyes out. In fact, we tend to create fences around laws. Let me, get, let me explain what that means. So if the law here is do not lust, do not commit adultery, 
then the fence that we'd build around it is wear very dark sunglasses and don't ever look at anybody. And the way that some people do it in Islam to, to stop from lusting is that they wear the head coverings, they wear all the things to, to, um, to cover up. Is building a fence around the law. And we do it in a lot of different th- kinds of things. And therefore, we limit our freedom in Christ. What I, am I saying we should lust after people? Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is we tend to build fences around these laws. So this idea has come from church history, has come from the Victorian era, era that sex is only procreation and actually sinful otherwise. So um, the argument here is that since the Bible only says that Adam and Eve laid with each other after the fall to, and then had kids, then that must have been the first time that they had sex. And that must have been as a result of the sin. Now, you have to understand, our ideas coming from this are from early church fathers. So, um, people like Tertullian and Ambrose and people like that. Now, they were dealing with cultures that were so sexually perverse that they went the complete opposite way. And I think we have a tendency to do that. When we see something that's wrong, we go the complete opposite way. But God does not always, that's not always where God is at. And so let me go a little bit deeper in here. So what do we think that Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25 says? It'll be up on the screen. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. If it's true that they only had sex after the fall, then what were they doing there naked, standing and staring at each other, becoming one flesh? Were they like, I mean, what were they doing? Can somebody explain? Honestly, I'm looking for answers. We can't explain that. They, I believe that they had sex before the fall. I believe that this is God's territory and this is divinely put in us by God, our, our whole sexuality. They were having sex. They weren't just staring at each other naked. So we've made the mistake of looking at sex these two ways. Um, and I want to give us some quotes from early church fathers. Tertullian, um, he lived in the first and second century in between the two. Ambrose lived in the third century. They both were known to quote this. They would prefer the extent, extinction of human race rather than continual sexual intercourse. The early theologian Origen, who lived in the first century, was so convinced of the evils of sexual pleasure that he castrated himself. I know, right? So at church, we're handing out knives later. And I'm kidding. Yeah, thank you for laughing. That was uncomfortable to say. Gregory and Nicaea said that Adam and Eve were created without sexual desire, and that only came after the fall. Jerome, who lived in the 3rd century and 4th century, threw himself onto thorny bushes whenever he had sexual desire stir up within him. He also taught in his church that husbands who slept with their wives for any reason other than procreation were guilty of adultery. I know. Right? What? But that's what they taught. And so, and so our biblical view has, has been uh, formulated that way. And then when we take this, this, um, this view and we teach it to kids, guess what kids do? The opposite of what we tell them. They always do that. And so they want to explore. They're like, oh, if that's so evil, then what do we do? 
So one of, the, one of the ways we talk to our kids about it, I think about being honest and being open and being saying, this is what God desires and wants for you within marriage. Anything else cannot, be, cannot contain it. Anything else cannot contain the sexual relationship. Only marriage is strong enough to contain it. The corruption of this natural desire that we have goes to view people as objects or to dehumanize others. But what is the biblical perspective on this? And I think is we need to see this as God's territory, as God's incredible wedding gift to those who are married. God's reminder of a covenant that was made with him and with our spouse. So let's get into this. I think we need to begin to think of sex in different terms. And so many of us have been hurt with this topic in certain ways. One, we either think of it as God or we think of it as gross, and, and we, we tend to get hurt by that. We tend to bring those ideas into the bedroom and hurt other people too. So we need to think about it in different ways. We need to think that God is the author and designer of sex. God knows it's pleasurable. He created it that way. Genesis chapter 2, after the first marriage ceremony, we already read they were both naked and they felt no shame. The implications of this, being naked was all that Adam and Eve knew. Their nakedness described their level of intimacy with each other. No shame, no guilt, no barriers, no insecurity, no comparison from the past. Nothing but joy, delight, and intimacy. Here's why this is important. We were sexual before we were sinful. We were sexual before we were sinful. Whereas many of the early church fathers wanted to teach that ever, anything sexual was a sin. And, and you have to understand, that was in response to their culture, which was going completely the other direction. We were sexual before we were sinful. In other words, the parts of us that are sexual, the arousal, the passion, the release, are all part of God's good creation. Sex is part of God's good design, and although the enemy tries to taint it, it is God's wedding gift to those who are married. So like I said, this is God's territory. So today, I want to give us this little history. I want to have us take a little bit of a biblical journey to understand why this is so important to God. So first, God gives us signs of his covenant, right? God knows that we are a people who are forgetful, right? How many of you just forgot what you ate for breakfast this morning? I mean, God knows that we are forgetful people. So God and, and Noah are, are uh, you know, God says, do this ark and build this up. And then what God does is he makes this entire huge flood. And then afterwards, Noah and his family and all these animals survive. And, and God makes a promise with him that he'll never do this again. And what does he do for a sign of that promise? A rainbow, right? He says, I'll make this rainbow so you can see that. And every time you see the rainbow, remember, I'll never flood the earth this way again. God then goes to Abraham and they make a covenant in, in his covenant. He says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But I need you to do this one thing. And, and what was that one thing that he was, had to do? Circumcision, right? God gives us reminders for the covenant. Reminders for the promise that he has for us. 
going a little bit further into the New Testament, Jesus is sitting around this table with his 12 followers, and he says, you don't understand what's about to happen, but I'm about to lay down my life. I'm about to forgive you of all your sins, and we're about to redeem all of humanity. The Holy Spirit's going to come. It's going to be a new covenant in my blood. And what does he do? He says, do this in remembrance of me. He passes around some bread, and he passes around some wine. God gives us a sign of the covenant. He gives us something tangible so that we remember how good he is. Jesus came and was baptized, and then he told his disciples to go out into all the world and to, just, and to baptize people who believe. So if you begin to believe in Jesus, if you surrender your life to Jesus, we, we call you to be baptized as a public statement of your faith. It's a, it's a sign of the covenant. It's a sign that Jesus has now sealed and saved me. It's a sign of the covenant. And so all throughout church, all throughout biblical history, we have all these different signs that were given to people between the promise. In fact, when we get married in, in our wedding ceremonies, I always talk about the promise that every time you see your ring, you look down and you remember the, the vows that you just made. You remember this, you remember that, and, and, and you know, when you look at your rings, how many of us actually remember that? I don't know if I do, um, because it's become kind of a part of me, and I forget that I even have it on. But the whole idea is that we need these little gifts in our life, these little things to help us remember the bigger covenant promise of it all. So, what's a way that God helped us to remember marriage? Sex. Let me play this out a little bit more. In every marriage ceremony, in Jewish marriage ceremonies, there's basically stuff that we agreed on. We, we call them vows, right? And all of you who are married said them. All of you went through them. You repeated them back um, to your spouse and things like that. But in every marriage ceremony, there are vows. And in Hebrew mar- marriage ceremonies, they just call them, um, I'm going to butcher this word, it's but ketubut. That's what they call the vows. And it's promises to each other. And, and they actually sign them in these Hebrew marriage ceremonies. It was essentially a list that they were both going to agree to. They were covenanting together. And they, they said, these are things that we understand that need to work out for us to be married and to live a happy life together. We just need to agree on these things. Or submit to one another, if you were here last week. They were in agreement of how people are to live together. The Ten Commandments is a marriage vow to God's people. We tend to look at it as, here's these laws, we need to follow these laws. But what if we looked at it as a marriage vow? That's actually how Hebrew people look at the Ten Commandments. It's why the first commandment is that you should now have no other gods before me. It doesn't work in a marriage if you have more than one lover, right? No, it doesn't work. That's why people get divorced. So for the rest of the Old Testament, God refers back to the original vows. God refers back to his law. In Hosea, God proclaims that the people of Israel have cheated on him. In Malachi verse 2, he calls Israel the bride of my youth. All throughout the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, I mean, we could go through it all. It's all synchronous. I'm I'm about to use a word that I don't even know how to say. I can say it in my head, but I can't verbally say it. Isn't that awkward? Yes? No? Anyways. They, they synchronized all through the, the, the Old Testament. They didn't, 
they didn't talk about it. It wasn't like these biblical authors were like, hey, let's use this metaphor. I think this would be really good. They didn't talk about it, but they used it all through the Old Testament, this marriage imagery. And then Jesus even uses it in the New Testament. He gives these parables about these ten virgins who are waiting, and, and, and then when the bridegroom comes, some of them have their oil and some of them don't. This is all bridal imagery. And in John chapter 14, when, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my Father's house, what he's talking about is marriage imagery. John 14, um, what happens is that the bridegroom goes to the house, goes to his father's house, builds on an extra room, and brings his bride back after they're married to live in their father's house. It's all marriage imagery. Jesus is saying to the church, you're my bride, and I'm going to bring you back with me. All marriage imagery and the sign of this covenant, the union between man and God, the union between husband and wife, the sign of the covenant of your marriage is sex. God created that. God gave that to you as his gift. So there's this other thing that Jewish people use called the hoopah. Some say hoopah, hoopah. Some of you have seen this if you've been to a marriage ceremony. It's a prayer shawl on four posts. And in Jewish marriages, what they would do is they would take these men and they would carry it around them as a symbol that God was hovering over them. The actual word that they would use is the Shekinah glory of the Lord was hovering over this couple. But it goes way back into church history, way back into theology. to say God was hovering over his people at Sinai when he gave them this covenant. And then God led them into the desert. And then God hovered over his people as they left for exile. And now God is hovering over this couple in marriage. The idea is what happens under the hoopah is sacred. What happens under that is between husband and wife. And actually, in, in real traditional ceremonies, no one else is allowed to enter under that hoopah. It's just for husband and wife. So what happens between you two is sacred. In other words, God is present in your lives. God is present in your marriage Hebrews uh, 13, 4 through 5 says this, and it should be up on the slides too. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content in what you have. Because God has said, I will never, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Here the author of Hebrews is taking keeping the marriage bed pure, being loved from the, free from the love of money. And he's taking the whole promise that God will never leave us and forsake us and remind us that those two go together. Remind us that in our marriages, God never is going to leave us or forsake us. Remind us that sexually, that God actually is with us. Reminds us that the sex is the, co- is the sign of the covenant of marriage. This reminds us that we need to keep this area pure. So what happens if we're way too into sex as God? So in other words, maybe you're into pornography. You're here and you're, you're into that and it's a secret thing and nobody knows because it's one of the most destructive things when it's secret and, and you're into that. How does that affect you? Is your marriage bed pure? Or let's say you're having sex before marriage. That's a sin against your future spouse. Think about the insecurity 
that they're going to have when you have to tell them about it. Think about the hurt and the challenge, the, the person that God is giving to you. But God places these two together, and maybe you're in this whole other area where you see sex is gross, and that leaves you to be shy and standoffish. Next week, we're going to um, look at some statistics on uh, married people and sex. And it's going to tell a little bit about what happens, or at least what they report happens. And uh, spoiler alert, very little happens, by the way, once you've been married for a while. And that goes to harm the relationship. It goes to ask yourself, do I even know this person? Am I even one with this person anymore? Strong marriages need to have good sex. Husbands, write that down. Remind, I'm kidding. Um, maybe you're here today and you've grossly mistreated your sexual life. I mean, that always, whenever we bring this topic up, there's always people who've said, I've, I've, done, I've grossly mistreated this area of my life. And it's been harmful. It's got repercussions. I buy into the other lie that I'm worthless. I buy into the other lie that the enemy is telling me that I'm damaged goods. I buy into those lies. Maybe you've done that, and, and, and you're beginning to buy into these lies. I just want to address those of you who are here feeling that right now. God wants to give you restoration. That is the sole thing that God does. He comes and he wants to restore the brokenness of our lives. And so I want to do a couple of things. One, we're not going to pray, but I invite you to close your eyes right now. And I just want to read a few verses and invite us to just think about what these verses say into our lives. So let's just close our eyes and hear the word of the Lord. If you're here and you've bought into the lie that you're broken, you're damaged goods, that nothing good can come because of what you may have done, I want you to just hear what the Lord said in the prophet, through the prophet Joel. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. In other words, what he's saying is, what the locusts have eaten, what the locusts have destroyed, I will restore. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord God, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who, who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. If you're here today and you've bought into the lie that you're damaged goods, that you're no good anymore, that you're broken, know that God wants to rejoice over you and wants to delight over you and wants to sing a new song to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This verse is saying is that if anybody was one way and then they began to follow Jesus, they can actually be born again, brand new, no stain, no blemish that you don't have to carry around the load of the past. Maybe you've bought into the lie that 
sex is a god or sex is gross, but it would be an even bigger travesty that it would be an even bigger win for the enemy even if you believe that there is no hope and no restoration for you. Let's pray. Jesus, there are so many thoughts and feelings and emotions that come with this type of message, that come with even bringing this message up. God, there's abuse. There's hurt. There's sin. God, and and I, I just know that we're not equipped to handle this by ourselves, Lord. We need you. Father, we could offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices and that we could ask you to take away the hurt. We could ask you to take away the brokenness. God, we could ask you to heal. We could ask you to restore. And that you are faithful and just to do so. God, some of us have tried this on our own. And we know the result. So I pray that if there's anybody here today who needs to just submit to you and repent, that they would begin to do that. Jesus, that we would give ourselves to you in such a powerful way that our entire sexual lives are handed over to you so that in our marriages we could be the best person for our spouse, so that we can give our spouse all of ourself. God, forgive us for treating people as objects. God, forgive us for mishandling the gift that you have given us. And Father, I pray that you would lead us into submission and repentance with our spouse and with you. God, we pray for healing in this area and restoration. God, and thank you for the beautiful line in Joel of what the locusts have eaten, what has been damaged, destroyed, hurt, broken, you will restore. So Lord, I pray for restoration of lives this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.